Welcome to What the If. Coming to you on a hyperbolic orbit. Racing through the solar system. How are you, sir? Uh, snowy. Um, we've, uh, we're digging out from the nor'easter here. Yes, here as well. Here as well. Uh, this is uh, Professor Matthew Stanley from New York University. Um, also, you know, itinerant meteor meteorologist, perhaps, with the snow uh, report. Well, I mean, only in the sense that we're all itinerant meteorologists, right? Every time we get rained on and complain about That's it. That's true. It's just a really primitive form of meteorology. That's true. That's true. Uh, so um, we are cozy inside uh, our uh, What the If virtual worldwide studio. And um, uh, what was I talking about? I mean, I, what, what was all my... Oh, I'm Philip Shane, documentary filmmaker. That's and, true. And uh, I haven't cited my sources in a long time. My source is me, and therefore rather illegitimate. Um, so I was irresponsibly doing what a lot of people do, uh, which is throw, throw around mathematical or scientific terms. Yeah, that's loosely. gotten me this far. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> uh, so why, why was I suddenly talking about a hyperbolic orbit of some kind? What does that even mean? Oh, um, uh, so a hyperbola is a shape. Um, along yes. with, say, a parabola or a circle, a straight line, those are all shapes. Um, and hyperbolas are the trajectories taken by uh, certain objects as they move through space under the influence of gravity. Um, so if you take a random object um, out into space and chuck it, um, the, the gravity that happens to be uh, in that area will determine what kind of path that object takes uh, after you have chucked it. Um, and one of those uh, is a hyperbola. Um, and it's, a, it's an interesting one because in our solar system, say, um, if something is traveling in a hyperbolic uh, path, that means it's going to leave the solar system um, and go visit it somewhere else. That's right. That's right. And um, one of our uh, favorite hyperbolic visitors. Um, you're being hyperbolic, say. <laughs> uh, you might say to this visitor. And I believe we only know of two um, visitors that we have spotted that came from outside our solar system. One of them is a little bit back in the news, back in the literature. And uh, that is Oumuamua. Yeah. Which, I, you know, I think when you say Oumuamua, you have to have Oumuamua. Ooh. You feel it's a little jazzy? Ooh, 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 yeah, it's got a... It's a swinging cat. Maybe it was a cat. So we don't know what it was. Uh, we did a whole show on it, and I encourage people to go to whattheif.com uh, and look through our earlier episodes or right there on your podcast app, of course. Um, mm -hmm. Listen, uh, Subscribe if you haven't already. And uh, we did show on Oumuamua. But... Uh, and then Oumuamua, basically, we'll, we'll get into a little bit of the details just to catch people up if you, if you don't remember what that is. Uh, but uh, it raced out of the solar system. And um, because we are humans, it out of sight, out of mind, pretty much just sort of went on its way. And a lot of mm -hmm. other crazy stuff 
happened. Wait, if it, what year was Umuamua? It wasn't. Oh, just a couple ago. of years ago. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, not long. Right. So 2020 happened, and that pretty much wiped all our minds. <laughs> That's right. and... Whatever we might have remembered from before. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, but um, a famous scientist um, has written a book about it. And um, who is he? And what's the you're you're waiting for the book uh, to so arrive. The scientist in question is um, uh, Avi Loeb um, from uh, Harvard University. He's uh, affiliated with the um, Center for Astrophysics there, as well as the the Black Hole Institute. Um, and uh, uh, there's in, a Black um, Hole it, Institute. There is a Black Hole Institute um, in Cambridge, Mass. You can go visit it if you're so inclined, um, but you can never leave. Um, yeah, I was going to say, if you get anywhere near, anywhere near it, you're, you're going so to say uh, Avi is a, a well-respected um, uh, astrophysicist um, and uh, in the issues of transparency, I should say he was one of my teachers um, back in the day. He's a, a, ah, a quality right human being. Um, Excellent. And uh, he um, uh, and he has uh, heterodox views about Oumuamua. Um, and he's uh, recently published a book titled Extraterrestrial, um, which kind of gives away his interpretation of it, uh, which suggests that it is, uh, in fact, an, an artifact of an extraterrestrial civilization. Um, and it's, uh, you know, he's a he's a bold thinker. Yeah. And and I'll be honest, when we uh, I didn't know of him that much, I, but I remember even at the time, he had published a paper or put out some sort of paper that suggested maybe Umuamua was an alien artifact, mm -hmm. um, perhaps a light sail uh, type of craft. And um, it seemed, you know, it was like, it, uh, interestingly, as much as I am, you know, all about the it. <laughs> so I recognize it as a cool if, mm -hmm. but I confess I had the kind of, hmm, judgmental perhaps science style science community style response of like oh he's going for the clicks the likes um so that forth. could be i should say um uh, my copy of avi's book has not arrived yet so i haven't read it so i can't recapitulate his argument in detail yet um right but uh, uh my sense is that he is not claiming any particular certainty on this um, uh, but rather that uh, we should embrace the role of um, edgy hypotheses if we want to learn new things in science. And you're right that that has to be balanced oh, against sort I, of Sagan's dictum of extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Um, yeah. Uh, but it's good to have uh, both of those poles in your thinking. Yeah, exactly. And uh, he, so I, I, was able to turn around my, to, to get a much more generous feeling about it, which is, I, I'm glad I was able to do that. Uh, he was on the um, planetary, a uh, planetary radio, which is the uh, radio show slash podcast, a uh, weekly um, creation of the planetary society founded by Carl Sagan and other notables um, currently um, led by Bill Nye. Oh. And uh, Neil Tyson was the uh, prior leader before that. So uh, a group that's really great. You should look into it. Um, we've had a, a, um, Casey Dreyer has been on our show a couple of times uh, from the Planetary Society um, talking about uh, NASA and things like that. So anyway, they're very interested in planetary 
research and stuff about the solar system. And uh, so they had him on and, uh, you know, it was interesting because their lead in to his interview is very long, much longer <laughs> than the typical lead in. And, uh, but you know, Matt Kaplan, who's the host of that show is fantastic. Uh, we've been there for many, many years. Um, you know, was saying he wanted to make it clear that he understands the, you might turn off this, you might turn away from this, you know, story and, uh, and this person, if you didn't know him at all. And then, uh, and then there's a great interview with him, which I recommend uh, listening to. And yeah, it, it, the first thing he says, actually something he says over and over and over and over again is I'm not in it for the likes. He's like, I'm not even on Facebook. <laughs> Apparently he probably, I don't think he was active on social media to any degree before he got married. But he, I, if I remember correctly, he said that one of the, um, uh, maybe one of the things that his wife, uh, demanded was if they were going to get married, he had to get off social media. So oh, interesting. Right. He, he is not on it. And, um, yeah. And ultimately he's sort of, he's approaching the world, approaching, um, this topic the way we do here, which is like, it's, it's helpful to have your imagination. It's helpful to be clear about what what you have evidence for and what you don't. So therefore what is speculation? Um, but he, his thesis really is that there is not a lot of evidence for it being the normal thing, which is quite interesting. Mm -hmm. um, so we'll see. We'll get the book. We'll, we'll dive in. But what I, I thought it'd be fun to run with the basic idea that it's space junk, right? And so, in other words, it's a broken part of a craft, perhaps. Uh, mm -hmm. It struck me that if that's the case, and maybe you can help us understand this better. I don't think a lot of people under, understand this or appreciate this, that when we find something, suddenly the response is always uh, from scientists, oh, this means they're everywhere, for instance. Oh. You know, the fact <laughs> that we found one means they're everywhere, right? Or it, mm -hmm. to their, you can, to be put a more fine point on it, okay, we, we can now calculate, we can begin to at least get an estimate of how much stuff is out there based on the odds of seeing it. And we have now seen two objects. One was Oumuamua, which does not seem like a comet. It seemed more rock-based. We don't know. If it was a comet, if it was outgassing like a comet, it really was invisible to us. And another was a comet, but from outside our solar system. And uh, two in two objects in two years. So they says, oh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So here's our if for this week. What the if? The galaxy is a junkyard. Full of garbage floating around space junk. More space junk than you can imagine on heaven and earth, Horatio. <laughs> Um, uh, yeah. So, what what does that tell us? This what what does that mean? If we see something, why does that mean that there must be a lot more of it? Why can't it just be like, oh, wow, we saw one in four billion years, and um, mm -hmm. um, probably it. So there's, uh, let's see here. There's a an, an assumption that science makes about the universe, um, which is that uh, it is generally all the same. Um, 
That is that there's nothing special about any particular place or time or perspective um, in the universe. So uh, sometimes that's things like uh, if gravity works here on Earth, we should assume that gravity works on Jupiter. And similarly, if gravity Mm. works today, we should assume that it'll work tomorrow um, and that that it also worked 10,000 years in the past. Um, so this mm. goes by various names, um, uh, and a particularly evocative um, name for it is the Copernican principle, um, wow. which is, again, this kind of statement that there's nothing special about us. Um, and calling it the Copernican principle kind of alerts us to the fact that this was not always a guiding principle for how we thought about the universe. So, for instance, in the Aristotelian uh, cosmos, um, the different parts of the universe behaved differently. There were different rules um, depending on where you were. Um, and one of the consequences of Copernicus's ideas is that you have to end up rejecting that principle. Um, oh, so Aristotle said that the rules in Athens, that there may be different physics in Sparta. Well, specifically, there's different physics on Earth and up by the sun. Okay. okay. Yeah. Um, there are different kinds of places. Right. Um, so, the, and then the more general term for this is the uniformity of nature. Um, that is, whatever uh, you assume that the universe is consistent with itself. There aren't special things in one place and special things in another. Um, so, uh, once you do that, once you make that assumption, that sort of premise for understanding the universe, um, then you can do nifty things, um, like you can look at the dots of light uh, in the night sky and say, well, those are probably the same kind of thing as our sun. And then you can do th- start doing things like exploring the universe with science because you know the rules are consistent and then you can extend what you've learned here to, to there. Um, yes. so, uh, so what the, one of the consequences of this is once you've got an example of something, then you can feel justified in... Um, assuming there's nothing particularly weird about it. You can assume that it exists elsewhere, right? So um, if I get a Big Mac here in Manhattan and it's mediocre, um, I can assume that every Big Mac I get in the universe um, will also be aggressively mediocre. Um, as a, and what the, one of the things this lets me do is I don't have to eat every Big Mac in the universe to make a conclusion about it. Um, Mm. I can say, I assume there is some uniformity among this thing. Um, the problem of course, is that not all, not uh, our experience is not that everything is uniform in this way. So the squirrels in Washington square park, um, are fat and will run up to you and pull food out of your hands. Whoa. Does that happen to you? Yeah. 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 Um, but most squirrels don't do that, right? If you go to Nebraska and you right. meet a squirrel there, they're going to be scary and they'll run away from you, right? Yeah, there's Midwestern right. politeness. Right. Um, yeah. So it's clear that we have to balance this idea of uniformity um, with, uh, with the realization that there is variation in the world too. Um, so kind of what makes the universe interesting is this balance between uniformity and variation. Um, right. So, so when you, if, if we, yeah. No, so, so when you encounter something new, um, one yeah. of the things you have to do is make a guess 
about where it falls on the uniformity variability spectrum. Okay. Um, and it's, and you have to bring in lots of other assumptions and guesses to do that with a new thing. Um, uh, so for instance, um, there's life on earth. Right. So, yes. um, yes. And earth is, a, and if earth is just a planet and the Copernican principle tells us that we should not think there's anything special about our planet. Um, so if that's the case, uh, then let's assume there's life on all the planets. All right. That's a, a straightforward yeah. Yeah. application of the Copernican principle. Um, and many thinkers do that for the few hundred years after Copernicus. Um, so you assume that the moon is inhabited. You assume that Mars is inhabited. You assume that Jupiter is inhabited. You assume that the sun is inhabited um, because you say there's nothing special about life. And then as we sort of explore the solar system more, we discovered that that's not the case. Um, but that was the guiding assumption for a long time. Um, and in some sense still is, right? We still think that wherever life can exist, it will. We've just changed yeah. our notions of what's of, of where life can exist. Um, and so now were there we headlines? Like, I feel like <laughs> if suddenly all these people were thinking, oh, yeah, there is life everywhere, that that was a huge change where their headlines <laughs> I don't well, I don't even know you had well, headlines. The assumption that the universe is full of life is actually very old, sort of as long as I mean oh, if, okay. if, if there, you know there's version there's Greek thinkers like Democritus and Lucretius um, who assumed that the universe is full of life too. So depending on where you right, come right. down on the uniformity principle, you should assume that life is everywhere. Um, right. but people recognize that it was um, an assumption or uh, a guess. Um, so, for instance, in the uh, 1830s, there's what's known as the Great Moon Hoax, um, in which uh, a, the, the New York Observer, if I remember right, one of our local newspapers here, um, ran a headline saying that the, the British astronomer John Herschel um, had found life on the moon. And huh? that was that was a headline. They said it was a hoax, and Herschel was very angry about it, and he didn't do anything. He didn't find. Oh, he but he didn't create it. Exactly. No, yeah. he only heard about it yeah. um, after the fact. It was fake news. It was fake, fake news. news. Some of the original fake news. Yeah. Um, so, so that's a good example because that's um, it was a headline, right? It was worthy of note, um, but at the same yeah. time, it wasn't outrageous, right? It's not like people said that's impossible. There could be no life on the moon. Interesting. Um, but it's still yeah. it's something you had to discover, right? Um, yeah. So whenever you discover something so, new, the, the, the first version of something, you have to decide right. whether or not um, it's, uh, it's the first time you encountered a common thing or it actually right. is a rare thing. And that's why you haven't seen it before. Yeah. This re so it reminds me of like if, if uh, the, our experience of Oumuamua is kind of like if we lived in the desert, let's mm -hmm. say, we live in a little Airstream trailer, which is, seems to be de rigueur. We may or may not be cooking meth, yeah. you know, depending on what I, TV I show. I am inspired. cooking meth. Yes, you don't cook. <laughs> it's better cooked, by the way. Apparently, um, raw meth is nasty. Yeah, <laughs> raw meth is worse than raw spaghetti. Uh, and you, for whatever reason, some this is a crazy what this not even a what it's just a bizarre scenario. You live out in the in the desert, and you grow up there, totally self-contained in this life at this little trailer and so forth and then 
you know, you're like 50 years old. And all of a sudden, one car races by on the lone road near you. Um, and then it's gone, right? In fact, mm -hmm. it, it went by so fast, you didn't even, you didn't see it until it was almost gone. And then as you looked at it, it was speeding up and going away from you. That was our, that's what happened with Oumuamua, right? We saw it a little bit late, it had already passed us. And then we discovered it was speeding up and left. Um, can we now say, oh, there must be cars mm -hmm. everywhere. Yeah. Um, um, or yeah, would so we need at least a second one? I mean, like, yeah. In other words, how quickly can you build a certainty or better certainty about the yeah, so, so there's there's no formal answer to this, and this is an age-old oh. philosophical problem called the problem of induction. So induction oh. is what your brain does when it sees a bunch of examples of something um, and then generalizes and says that's always the case. All right, so um, you need to eat a few McDonald's Big Macs before you decide that their aggressive mediocrity is a standard feature of them. Um, and there's no, like I said, there's no rule for this. Like how many would you need to eat? Four, 20, hundred, and then, but at some point you decide, okay, I've got a sense of this thing. Um, and I'll, I'll move forward with my life, assuming that's the case. Um, mm -hmm. the, the problem is that there actually is no number that formally guarantees that you can do this. Um, and this is called the black swan problem, right? So every swan I've Ooh. ever seen in my life is white. Um, so induction tells me that swans are white. Um, the problem is if there is one black swan living in a cave in Kazakhstan, um, that makes my the induction- named Borat. <laughs> that makes my induction wrong, right? That means my conclusion about swans being white is incorrect. Um, yeah. Nonetheless, I'm totally justified in, um, in my induction that swans are white, even though it's wrong. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So this is, the, this is the danger of inductive thinking. Um, right. Uh, so it's really powerful. It lets you do important things in terms of understanding the universe but you can never be guaranteed they're correct. Um, right. And the, the smaller the number of examples you have that you're basing your induction on, the more likely it is that you're wrong about that induction. Yeah, yeah. And also then you have to look at what, you know, what are you capable of finding? For instance, you might say mm -hmm. that I've, I've not gone into all the caves in Kazakhstan or right. the world. Mm -hmm. Therefore, and, and also I don't know that, I've, I've suddenly learned maybe swans live in caves, which is unusual. That would be unusual. Uh, only in Kazakhstan, um, right? So only in Kazakhstan, you know, for sure. Because they're hiding in from live in motel yeah. lights. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. uh, so that's right. So one of the things you can do with in, to make your inductions more certain is to put those sort of qualifiers on it, right? So you might say right. something like, "Since I've only been alive for half a century." Um, I'd say all swans in the last 50 years are white, um, 
or I might, if I've never left Manhattan, I might say all swans in Manhattan are white. And then I'm a little more comfortable. You get closer. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, but at so, the same time, you're taking, also more boring, right? Because you don't get to say interesting things. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so taking a huge leap now, how much space junk might have to be floating in the universe mm -hmm. for one of these I, 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 here's one thing that's intriguing about the idea is that it, it, there's you know uh, there's a very good case made uh in fact by seth shostak at seti and, uh, and others um that if we meet alien life or alien that we're actually more likely to meet alien technology first than alien life because mm -hmm. it's Theoretically, it's just easier just to make a bunch of self-replicating robots that go out and explore the universe. Uh, and what I like here is Avi Loeb, you know, in suggesting that it could be a piece of j broken uh, technology um, that uh, you're then even more likely to find broken or pieces, fragments, let's say, of technology. Yeah. Uh, in other words... Right. Yeah. So if you imagine, for instance, the, the Earth, um, right. if, you, if you considered all of the functioning pieces of technology that are around every car and every smartphone and every refrigerator, and then you compared that to every broken piece uh, of machinery and every piece of garbage produced on the Earth, yeah. um, if you picked a random object from the surface of the earth, is it more likely to be a functioning machine or is it more likely to be a piece of garbage? Um, and I actually don't know off the top of my head what that, <laughs> how that calculation would go. Um, well, considering uh, the amount of garbage that humans make, mm -hmm. it's um, possible that you would, you know. Yeah, that's right. And for instance, archaeologists, you know, when archaeologists dig stuff up, um, they overwhelmingly right. find not the cool artifact that goes on display in the museum. Um, they find a broken piece of something um, because humans chuck the broken things away and don't do anything with them. Um, the, right. the useful thing yeah. they hang on to, right? They don't, they don't drop the useful thing. Um, so, right. for instance, um, if, you, uh, if you ever go on an archaeological dig, one of the things you will find enormous amounts of is broken pieces of pottery. Because mm -hmm, we break mm -hmm, lots yeah. of pottery and then it gets left there. Um, and yeah. your first day on the dig, when you when you find your first piece of broken pottery, you'll be so excited. It's like, oh, look, I found an artifact. This is so exciting. Um, yeah. And you'll take it to the head archaeologist and they will literally chuck it over their shoulder. And, like, <laughs> and then after a week, you will discover that there is a giant pile of broken pottery literally hundreds yeah. of pounds of broken pottery um, that is of no interest to anyone whatsoever because there is so much of it there. Yeah. Um, yeah. So much of our knowledge of the past is based on garbage. Um, so it's not hard to infer that our now, knowledge... You're not, that, that, that wasn't some shade you were throwing at your fellow historians. That no, no, this, is, this, is, a, this is a real thing. Right. Um, yes. And even worse, if you're working on the archaeological dig, you will spend hours cleaning that pottery and then see it thrown out. Um, the uh, oh. archaeology is devastating to one's self-worth. So this happened to you? This happened to me. It's over and over again. <laughs> and where was it? What, what were you? 
Where I was on an archaeological. You... I spent two summers doing archaeology um, back in college uh, in the Middle East, um, digging up a uh, uh, a Roman settlement uh, called Yodfat, um, uh, which uh, we can talk about another time. Yeah. Oh yeah, that sounds really cool. Um, sounds like what, it was like a maybe a frozen yogurt place. Um, no, it was a, um, a massacre place uh, full of oh. death and uh, horrors. Wow! So no, very oh, little. We're going to do that. Yeah. Wow, interesting. Um, all right, so junk. In other words, there's there's junk flying around. Yeah, and right. pieces. And like, if you go down the high, for instance, this highway, I was imagining we live in the desert. Well, one of the ways we might have started to gather a little bit more information about what a car is and how often do they come by and whatever is now go for a walk along that highway mm -hmm. um and we would probably find a muffler and maybe a tire uh yep broken things mm -hmm. right and, and one could, the, i mean uh, along the analogy that we were just talking about is the first time you see a car drive by do you assume that that car is functioning properly or do you assume oh. that it is broken <laughs> and not working in some way um so you might say well, it looks like it's it, it, it's not moving in the way that I normally see objects move, right? Like it's accelerating, for instance, and I don't usually see rocks yeah. accelerate. So I assume there's something yeah. unusual yeah. about it. But maybe if you yeah. saw the car just coasting by, you'd say, oh, well, that's clearly an artifact, but um, maybe it's not working because it's not doing anything unusual. So this is, this is Avi's argument about Oumuamua. Um, is there's definitely weird things about it, but it's not behaving in the way you would expect a spacecraft under power to behave. So maybe um, yes. it's junk, right? Because it's moving on this hyperbolic orbit, it means it's not powered and it's just right. moving on momentum and gravity. If it, that's an important thing. I think it was it was definitely surprising to astronomers that it was accelerating um, as it moved out. It was getting faster as it left. Mm -hmm. But um, what he's saying is, you we have no evidence. So he's he is being careful and saying you can't assume that because that it has, that it has engines. For instance, they didn't see any power. <laughs> they didn't see any exhaust of any kind. Right? Yeah, we didn't see natural. Power. We didn't get electrical emissions from it or anything like that. Right. Um, so he uh, says so the one thing that can ca cause that is is pressure from light from the sun. Mm -hmm. uh, and in fact, the, there's a fun tie-in here because the, to the planetary society. They built, and it's still up there, I believe, um, uh, a light sail, experimental light sail craft. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's basically a gigantic foil, you know, she like basically a sail, mm -hmm. a huge sail foil. And, and the uh, light, the photons coming off the sun give it a very, very gentle push. But over time, that just continues to go faster and faster and faster and faster. Uh, and so Avi Loeb is saying maybe that's maybe we saw a sail floating around. Which okay now by the way one quick extrapolation there would also be not just that there's junk everywhere, but maybe there are that light sails are such a common form of transport mm -hmm. that you know just like most of the roads are littered with mufflers indicating right. that cars are popular mm -hmm. form of transport yeah um, that's, that's right and, and actually that's actually an inference you could make so anywhere you go in the world you will see discarded tires for instance yeah 
on the side yeah. of the road, in alleyways. Um, and you're, it's a correct assumption that um, that indicates that tires are a really common thing, um, discarded uh, in the process of using a really common piece of machinery, or cars, right? Um, yeah. So the space equivalent of that might be that Oumuamua is a discarded tire, right? Um, so whatever it oh, is, it, is left behind yeah. by some very common form of space travel, as Avi suggests, um, uh, a solar sail. And yeah. our galaxy is so big, and the space between stars, between the possibly inhabited places, is so vast that you'd say, if um, any piece of junk arrives around our star, then the galaxy must be absolutely full of it. There must be junk yeah. everywhere for us, yeah. for our weird place to get it. Um, similarly, so we live in the desert um, and nobody comes to visit us. And then we see a car zoom by one day and we say, well, those things must be really common to have come all the way out to where we live in the middle of nowhere. Oh, interesting. Right. Interesting. In fact, then you might even, if you, you, if you knew absolutely nothing about it, um, you don't even know what cars are and all that, uh, you might imagine that it was a piece of junk from some larger thing. Um, yeah, that's quite right. a fascinating so as, thing to imagine what, it is, what, okay. what, what that would yep. have been. And that's one of the things that, for instance, again, archaeologists do with pieces of pottery. Um, some pieces of pottery are shaped such that you can infer what the whole rest of the pot um, was shaped like. Um, hmm. And I used to have a piece of pottery sitting on my desk right next to me, but I don't seem to have it. Of course, everyone's listening to us. It wouldn't matter even if I could hold it up to the camera. Um, um, but <laughs> no, the point you're holding being, it up right now. It's amazing. Right, sometimes yeah. you can infer that. And you could do that with a discarded tire as well, right? You could, by the size of the yeah. tire, um, you could make an inference about how large the whole thing, the whole vehicle was um, by the internal pressure in the tire, you can make inferences about how heavy it was and what, you know, maybe what the experience of driving in it might have been. Um, you can make inferences about the process by which it was made and therefore learn something about the larger industrial scale um, uh, of the civilization right. that produced right. it. So there are things, even if you don't have, even if you only have fragmentary information, there's a lot you can learn from a discarded right. piece of garbage. Interesting, like, I don't know, I just thought of this, but like, if you saw a serial number on the, t I happen to know, t so just like, you know, you know, the uh, humiliation that can occur on an archaeological dig, a humble, a humble work, humble job. Um, mm -hmm. I have intimate, humiliating experience with tires, having worked at Sears Automotive. Oh, dear. Which is a, That's unfortunate. Like a department, department stores, yeah, <laughs> car shop, you can bring your car to the mall and get it fixed. And, um, uh, but we had to move tires around all the time. Anyway, you would see a number on the tire. And first, I was actually always intrigued by those numbers. I was like, because you just see some long number, right? Serial number, something like that. But from that number, you might assume, wow, uh, if this is somehow related to, if this is a unique number for this tire, let's say, it tells you how many tires have been made. Like this number is so vast that this must be a huge civilization. Um, also, if you were an alien, you came to Earth, and all you found was a tire, um, you might, say, until you found that number, you might not know whether this was a natural object or not. Yep, that's right. Yeah, that's right. So we've, that's right. So this is really, I mean, that's the, 
the main uh, issue behind obvious claim in the first place um, yeah. is that is, we're trying to figure out whether this is a, a, a an artificial thing or not. Um, and this turns right. out to be a tricky thing. And again, I go back to archaeologists because I know them fairly well, um, is sometimes you'll find something in the ground and you can't tell whether it's an artificial object or not. Um, and you, oh, get wow. to have, you get to have good arguments about it, right? That's, that's fun. Um, I mean, this is particularly an issue with um, uh, vastly prehistorical stuff, right? You find a sharp piece of rock and you try to tell oh, whether right. or not some Neanderthal made it sharp or if it just happens to be a naturally sharp piece of rock. Um, right. And this is a really difficult thing to figure out, that there is no, no clean answer to this sorts of thing. Um, but the state, yeah, in fact, like the shape, the shape of Oumuamua, interestingly, mm -hmm. is very, it seems to be very long and flat ish. Um, there's some debate as to whether is it a long oblong quote cigar shape or is it perhaps a disc, but either way, it definitely seems, it seems to be flat, mm -hmm. um, and um, spinning. Yeah. Which accounts for it. it got very got very bright and then it got very dark. It got very bright and got very dark. So they say, well, it looks like it's a flat thing that's tumbling. But we don't have any. Uh, I believe one of the pieces of evidence that uh, Avi is saying doesn't that we don't have a good explanation for is we don't see objects like that flying through space. These really long, flat shards. Yeah, that's right. Nature does not produce a lot of long, flat objects. Um, mm, yeah, uh, it yeah. does. It, it prefers the potato shape to um, the cruller shape. Um, uh, yeah. So, uh, so you might very banal choice. The <laughs> I'd <laughs> much rather have a cruller than a potato. Well, sure, exactly right. Uh, no, 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 no shame to potatoes. Yeah. Uh, so we've got some. Um, uh, so again, so you see the the long flat shape. Um, and you say that's not a normal thing that we see uh, among space objects. Um, so you can either say this is a new kind of common object that we're just encountering for the first time. And this kind of body is actually more common than we thought. Um, or you can yeah, say, no, the fact yeah. that it's it is genuinely unusual. It's not just that we haven't seen before. There's actually something new about it. Uh, right. In which case, then you can make assumptions like... That's a manufactured object. Right. And another thing is, for instance, let's say it's only this, it was the first interstellar object that we've spotted. Yes. That's, that's something I'm not sure a lot of people under, understand or appreciate that everyone knows about asteroids and comets, but every, every object we've ever seen um, like that, an asteroid or a comet, has been inside our solar system. We, we know we can calculate the orbit and see that it stays within it. It might go very, very, very far out. Yeah, that's right. This actually, I guess, takes us back to our, our opening hyperbolic statements. Um, mm -hmm. By looking at the, the trajectory an object has, um, you can tell where it's going to go in the future, more or less, and also where it came from in the past, more or less. Yeah. Um, but one thing you can distinctively tell is whether or not um, it will stay in our solar system for long periods of time. Um, and what made Oumuamua interesting in the first place was that, as you say, it was the first object we saw that its trajectory indicated it came from outside our solar system. Yeah, yeah. And also its origin, it, it came from 
well outside the plane. The, in other words, the solar system is a little bit shaped like a disk, a flat spinning. Mm -hmm. Everything is in the same plane, the ecliptic. And this came from a high angle, uh, which was uh, unusual, not unheard of, uh, right. but unusual. Uh, so it's I, possible it's a it's a it's a stone that someone has skipped across the pond of the universe. Yes, that's right. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so I think the uh, the the sort of takeaway here that if you know if our if is what if Oumuamua was a piece of space garbage, um, the the can the the things that we can um, infer based on that uh, are actually quite enormous, um, which is that as I said, there's the the galaxy is huge. So if we've seen two pieces of space garbage in five years, um, then that means there's a lot of space garbage in our solar system um, yeah. that we didn't make. Um, and that means there's an enormous right. amount in the galaxy as a whole because we're a tiny little backwater, right? We're the airstream in the desert. Um, so if we're right. seeing pieces of garbage, then the center of the galaxy must be vastly filled with huge amounts of garbage. So then the yeah. question becomes, looking, what kind of a civilization would produce that much garbage? That's right. Now, looking around, I would call it our yard, but really the undifferentiated rocky sand brush space around our trailer, I see a lot of junk, you know, and yeah. uh, that, that's just, you know, that, that could say something about us. But then if I also had a larger um, understanding of the, of the earth, I would be, be aware that there is a lot of junk. These these humans make a lot of junk. Yes. <laughs> and can we extrapolate that to say that, okay, if Earth, this ordinary place like Earth has life, uh, and therefore life is probably quite abundant throughout the galaxy or the universe, and then we could also say the life on Earth universally makes vast amounts of junk, therefore all the other living civilizations also it's likely that they make a lot of junk yes right they're not um, tidy yeah, tidiness but, is not a natural well state. so that's right so this is say this is one of the inferences you can you could make because there are civilizations that are really good about not dropping garbage right they use everything they recycle yeah. everything oh, um, yeah, and archaeologists yeah. hate them um and then there's <laughs> yeah and then there are civilizations that produce enormous amounts of garbage, um, like modern American civilization. I mean, I'm yeah. sure you nope. just, you know, you and I are old enough to remember a time when we did not produce as much garbage as we do today. Um, it's uh, uh, so, th so that tells us something about the kind of civilizations that inhabit our galaxy too, um, is either they're really wasteful or um, yeah. they're really vast and really old, right? Maybe they only produce one piece, only one, maybe they only leave behind one broken light sail, um, per eon. Um, but yeah. they've been around for a billion years. So they still have filled the galaxy with their crud. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I have a friend who actually works at NASA has worked there for many, many, many years. Uh, and he uh, is an engineer. He works on the uh, satellites that maintain the communication between um, the space station and the Earth. And um, he, uh, I remember once as a kid, so he's quite a bit older than me, and we came, we visited New York. And it was the first, we did not live in New York, so we were coming here for the first time, at least I was. And, um, you know, would I remember commenting, wow, it's so dirty here. 
Like there's, for instance, you, it's like there's paper cups everywhere. Mm. And I remember he, he began a calculation as he is wont to do, uh, in terms of, wow, how many people must be throwing out how many cups for these cups to wind up on the street all over, just blowing in the wind. And then at some point later in the day, uh, a gust of wind came and blew away, blew a cup out of his hand and it went flying away. And I remember he was so excited because he was like, oh, okay, that's how it happens. It isn't that, you know, that, that the odds of a cup flying suddenly grows enormously because you don't need one type of person to just throw these cups on the ground. You know, it's like, it's a natural phenomenon. And then he said, you know, wow, from that, you could actually begin to, you could actually count the cups on the ground and get a sense of how many people lived in the city. And yes, like, that's oh, exactly right. That's so really that is, cool. Um, yep. Yeah. Uh, so that is uh, that exactly the kind of calculation archaeologists make, for instance, um, and yeah. the kind of calculation you could make um, with the space junk, too. Uh, the problem yeah. and the difficulty here is that we have uh, you. We know a lot about paper cups. We know about how they are produced. We know about how they are consumed. We know about how they are discarded, uh, because right. we have literally billions of examples of it. We don't know much about space junk, um, uh, about how space junk is produced and discarded. Although we have, interestingly, for actually, if you wanted to count it, well, for instance, NORAD. Right, the uh, the American Air Force uh, keeps track of every piece of space junk bigger than like I don't know mm-hmm. a quarter a few or a dollar. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, and they can calculate, and it's an enormous amount, right? So we we could say perhaps that you could say, well, over this many decades, this civilization produced this much junk that is still flying, and we would understand the rate at which it decays, perhaps, but mm-hmm. it's a lot of, a lot of it's a lot. stuff. <laughs> um, but it has to then. Here's the here's the really fascinating thing: that space junk, all the stuff floating around. But if you see the movie Gravity, it's a little exaggeration in terms of what the space junk is like. But the movie yeah, Gravity, a real part. Yeah, yeah. Um, that still goes all around the Earth, and eventually will fall back to the Earth. It will never. It will not go into interstellar space. Uh, no, that's right. Some of it will fall back into uh, out of orbit and into our atmosphere. Um, right. But no, none of it's none of it is going to go around another star ever. Which means, but but you could imagine saying, well, even without getting to the if the civilization doesn't get so far, it can create interstellar travel, right? Mm-hmm. Um. A couple things. Well, we have a, the Voyager and the Pioneer. I take that back because the Voyager and Pioneer satellites are traveling outside of the solar system. So th- that's our first space junk. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's <laughs> We've, there's our, a junk. There's an old. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And just like most junk, a lot of it is like old records. <laughs> you pay right. five cents. Yep. Mm-hmm. Get this record. Where'd you get that? I found it. I <laughs> uh, found it at a. Uh, garage sale around uh, Alpha Centauri. Um, but if, for instance, a small amount of objects do get kicked out, for instance, the comet that came by from another solar system, it got kicked out of some solar system, let's say. Mm-hmm. So, so occasionally it can happen. You can then begin to say, wow, 
the amount of junk that a civilization must generate to have created all this accidental interstellar junk would really be vast, right? right? Really, that'd be staggering. quite. I mean, imagine how the pig pen civilizations, um, or more likely, they've learned to travel. I guess, and that's where that's interesting. That's where it makes sense. The obvious saying. It's a light sail. It's a piece of an object intended to go through interstellar space. Yeah. It's like a muffler that fell across, across mm -hmm. the road. So, so what do you think? So how much, uh, how dirty might the, uh, how polluted might the galaxy be? Um, uh, hugely. Without us seeing it. <laughs> I think, right? The, yeah. the, the <laughs> galaxy is one big junkyard at this point. Um, I mean, fortunately, the, the galaxy is is big enough that you don't need to worry about like getting hit by a piece of junk, um, ah. but it is definitely in it is definitely ready for um, an anti littering campaign. Um, will you people <laughs> please go out and pick up your light sails um, after <laughs> after you're done with them? Um, there was a uh, public service announcement, a very, very famous one that ran here in the States, right? With a, an American, a Native American uh, Indian chief um, crying as he was sitting on his horse. It was, it was actually a beautiful ad, although now a bit, uh, it could be a bit. Yeah. Not age. yeah. Um, but I can imagine an ad that is a crying alien. It's just, mm -hmm. Well, ET. It's like kind of like ET. ET crime. It's dirty. Um, but that leaves. So here's here's where we'll 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 go. This is where the, our, our if takes us all the way. If there is that much junk, even if it's one object per year that comes through, if any of that was alien technology, um, it's likely to be from different perhaps aliens i mean there's, there's, there's no reason why it would have to be the same junk from the same civilization that would i guess it would depend on how yes many that's right there could be many civilizations yeah mm -hmm. yeah but all those science fiction stories of which by the way uh shout out to our one of our earlier guests who i'd love to get back uh, paul mccauley has written um wonderful science fiction stories about people who live on other planets and um find junk find alien junk and then you know, try to use it. And it's just a fascinating story. Uh, that could, that really, if he's right, that this junk is flying through our solar system and it's alien technology, it might just be like an unbelievable, uh, I don't know, what do you call it? Uh, free stuff, free, crazy alien stuff. Uh, yeah, that's right. Around. Uh, when I, uh, uh, if we can figure out how to recycle that garbage, um, we may be yeah. able to invent all sorts of useful things. Yeah, and you know, one civilization's garbage is another one's treasure. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so you know, if you go to sub-Saharan Africa, for instance, you'll find that people use discarded tires uh, to make all sorts of useful things. Ah, um, uh, interesting. Uh, so we need to figure out what the equivalent of um, making shoes <clears throat> out of tires is for uh light sails we'll see yeah you know what's gonna happen is we're gonna find some alien civilization and uh it turns out they had visited earth before and they've built all kinds of stuff out of tires <laughs> they just took they took the most abundant thing they could find and they, yeah, why not uh, clean them up for us um 
and accidentally set some on fire that are still burning. <laughs> um, uh, so, you know, Elon Musk, maybe this is why Jeff Bezos just announced that he's kind of stepping down or stepping away from day-to-day operations at Amazon. Uh, one of the things he wants to spend more time with is his space company, Blue Origin. It could be that Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and anyone else who cares to join the fight is like that Umumua thing might have been alien technology. There, there really would be, if once we realized that around once a year, one magical alien object flies through the solar system, right? There would be a race every year. It'd be like an, uh, like an armada. Ah, go catch it. A regatta, excuse me. Yeah, capture the alien junk. That's kind of fun. Yeah, um, yeah I look forward to that. Yeah. So uh, what do you think, do, just in your gut? We, we have no idea. But uh, what do you think Umuamua is? Natural or oh, um, intelligent? Uh, I do not think it is the artifact of a, a civilization. Um, but um, I haven't read Avi's book yet, so I'm willing to be persuaded. Um, the, the, yeah, universe, yeah. the universe is full of weird stuff, and I have no trouble imagining that natural processes can produce something that would be confusing to us. Um, and yeah. I don't feel in the same way that, you know, there are people who like look at the pyramids and they say, humans could never have done that. It must have been aliens. Um, that strikes me as fairly lazy thinking. Um, uh, and actually, the universe is pretty productive um, on its own terms. Oh, yeah, that's great. Uh, I'll leave you with this provocative thought that he says. He says, you know, Carl Sagan said the famous maxim that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And he says, maybe that's not true. He says, why? Uh, you know, well, yep. that, mm -hmm. I, I think what his point is, is, is to say, look, we don't have like, it's not like we have a ton of other natural explanations. If that was the case, then you would say, yeah, it's probably Occam's razor or whatever. It's probably a natural thing. But he says, we have, we have very few ways to explain this using natural terms. Therefore, we should make sure to never close our mind off to the possibility that this is that thing and that scientists should be okay with letting people get excited that maybe it's aliens. It brings interest in science. That's a good thing. Use responsibly. <laughs> Use your fame responsibly. Sounds right. All right. Wonderful. Anything you'd like to plug? Nope. This week. Nope. Nope. Plug no, We've no been shoveling. You've been great. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Not, nothing to plug your wireless this week. That makes yeah. sense. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, we uh, we have some interesting guests lined up coming, so we'll so that's going to be fun. Uh, let me close out with a quick um, a quick check of the mailbag. Woo! Ooh, moo, moo. This is actually more. Ooh, moo, moo. Josh wrote in, and uh, you'll you'll appreciate this, Matt. Greetings, wise masters of the if, the conclave of going on twenty eight year olds. Humbly thanks you, and ex do you remember this? Uh, and accepts your gracious apologies following the Block Universe debacle of 2020. We would like to have gotten our response in sooner to you, but we've been on holiday recess since the release of the mailbag episode in which our concerns were addressed. Now, in a segue on par with at least a majority of Phillips, it's a high bar, we move on to totally unrelated matters. <laughs> 
What, I think you should throw shade on my segues. I think that's right. What the if the charge of electrons and protons were swapped? Would this affect physics or merely be an arbitrary change in the way humans describe things? This if coming to you from the floor of the Thirsty Planet Brewing Company in Austin, Texas, where I will continue listening to three or four episodes a day until they run out. I, I don't know if you mean until the beer runs out or until our episodes runs out. But either way, we hope both keep flowing. Maybe, maybe we'll go into that in another episode. We'll do it next time. Josh, thank you for teeing that up. We'll hit that next week. Keep your uh, cards and letters coming, folks. Feedback at whattheif.com or go to whattheif.com or write us a comment right there on the front page. You can type it in and hit send. And now, when I think of all the junk that is coming our way, every one of them is a potential if. Every piece of junk is an idea. How does that make you feel, Matt? Uh, a little horrifying. I might have to uh, scream. What, what the? the-